Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. This time next week, I will officially be on sabbatical, and I can not wait. We announced my sabbatical last week to those who call Denver Community Church home, and even beyond that, we, we announced this uh, through email and shared this on social media. And I, I mentioned this right at the top because so many people sent me emails and direct messages and shared comments, and every single one of them was so encouraging and so kind. I said to my wife yesterday how deeply I appreciate uh, how many people have encouraged me and blessed me and uh, really cheered us on, me and my family. And so for those of you listening who sent along words that, of encouragement and kindness, um, deep gratitude and thanks. Uh, the most natural question when people hear that I'm taking a sabbatical is, well, what will you be doing? And the theme of my sabbatical is I'll be exploring my family's roots. Many know that my father is Cuban and that he came to the United States in the midst of the Cuban Revolution in 1960 by himself at the age of 15. Uh, And while he's Cuban, when we were growing up, my siblings and I, there was very little emphasis on our heritage connected to the Cuban people. Several years ago, however, um, I found myself increasingly curious about my dad and his story, which is obviously a massive part of my story, his family, which is my family, and the nation of Cuba. And so I invited him out to Denver, and we sat for 10 hours, and I recorded him sharing his story and the story of my grandparents and the story of my great-grandparents, and they were Spanish and Basque. And uh, he shared the story all the way through to today. And a piece of me woke up as I listened to him and ever since then, and all I've wanted to do is learn more and more about my family. And uh, I'm deeply grateful to the Clergy Renewal Foundation who gave a grant to Denver Community Church on my behalf. And this allows my family and I to travel both to Cuba, which we'll do in June, and then Spain, which will be July and part of August. And on top of that, I plan to spend time in wild places, in solitude and silence. My wife and I are going to walk a portion of the Camino in, uh, in Spain together. I'll meet with Dan, who's my confidant and spiritual director. I'll spend time discerning what the next season is for me, and I will rest. And this means uh, I will have zero responsibilities at Denver Community Church. I will be totally off email and social media and I will not be doing the podcast. So this is it until September or October, somewhere in there. Um, I'm purposely not making any plans now about what the fall will be like. And so once I'm back around and in the rhythm of daily life again, I'll figure out when the podcast comes back. Uh, and since I have sabbatical on the brain, it feels like senior <laughs> senioritis. For today's episode, I want to talk about rhythms and seasons, and time, and rest, and how all of that works together. Because this is something that is woven into the fabric of the universe. And we see this, by the way, in the very beginning of the Hebrew scriptures. There, in Genesis chapter 1, we find what we might call the Hebrew cosmology. It's a creation poem. 
And in the ancient world, cultures and religions and civilizations, they had these cosmologies or creation poems or myths as a way of understanding who God or the gods were and what the earth is all about and who we as humans are. Because where you come from matters. And so the creation poem in Genesis chapter one is built out into seven movements, or we can call it seven stanzas, and they correspond to the seven days that it took God to fashion the universe. And on day four, we find these words. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now at first glance or upon listening to it, it it may seem as though this day tells about the creation of the stars and the heavenly bodies. And it does. But it also points towards something else. And what it points toward and what it teaches us is that woven into the fabric of the universe is rhythm. Or we might say, a way of measuring time. And the way time is measured in the ancient consciousness is by the movement of the heavenly bodies. Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna points out that the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon, that these are gauges by which days and years and sacred times and sacred seasons are determined and measured. And so at the largest cosmic scale, the creation poem claims these heavenly bodies were a kind of clock. And this reflects how the ancient people understood this. that They would look into the night sky And among other stories that were associated with the stars, they began to notice that around the same time every year, they would see the same stars in the same place, in the same formations, which is what we now call constellations. And they knew that this movement of the stars corresponded to the seasons, which corresponded to agriculture. And so this was like when they should plant and when they should harvest. And this was also connected to high holy days, which is what the writer of Genesis called sacred times. And the reason this is connected is because many of the festivals or feasts were were connected to the agricultural calendar. And in the Jewish tradition, these were the spring festivals and the fall festivals or feasts, which means the stars and sustenance and religious traditions were all connected. And our ancestors understood, well, the stars have a rhythm. And because they have a rhythm, they can be used to mark time. And they mark time along really what would be a year-long calendar. Now, of course, the writer tells us there was the lesser light or the moon, and that would appear as a sliver or as my kids call it, like a fingernail, (laughs) and it would grow in size until it was a celestial disk in the sky. And then they would watch as it would shrink in size until it once again became a sliver and then it disappeared. 
And depending on how you're counting with regard to the moon, it takes a little bit more than 27 days for the moon to orbit the earth one time and a little more than 29 and a half days for it to complete a phase, which is new moon to new moon. And most ancient cultures used the moon to determine months. Why? Well, because the moon has a reliable rhythm and can be used to mark time. And then, of course, there's the greater light, or the sun, and this was used to mark days for obvious reasons. Every day, it would rise on one side of the sky and set on the other side of the sky, and this marked days. But they, they also observed that the path of the sun would change in the way it moved through the sky throughout the year, and they figured out how to use the sun to measure the length of a year. Because the sun, like the moon, like the stars has a reliable and consistent rhythm, and because of that, it can be used to mark time. You see, in the minds of the ancient people, these celestial lights, these heavenly bodies, these lesser light and greater light, they were all signals to them about time, about the passage of time, about the rhythm that exists in the universe, and they arranged their lives according to them. And in this way, they then understood the passage of time. When something had finished, when something was beginning, when something was over, when something was starting. In this ancient understanding of rhythm and time, it's not been lost on modern people. The the main difference is is that over thousands of years, we've learned that we can measure time with increasing accuracy. But the way we measure time has not changed at all right up until this moment. Because when we find that something has rhythm, it can be used to measure time. I mean, for example, humans learned at some point that if you would set something, a stick or a branch or a stake, if you would set this at the proper angle in direct sunlight, you could measure not just days, but hours. Of course, we call this thing the sundial. And this is a leap forward because you go from measuring years to months to days. Now you're measuring hours. Why? Because there's a consistent, reliable rhythm. And of course, we didn't stop there because we figured out that if you hung a weight on a wire or string at the right length and with the right degree of arc, now you can measure not just years and months and weeks and hours. Now you're measuring minutes and seconds. We call this the pendulum, and it was the Italian physicist Galileo who's credited with its discovery because he was in a cathedral in Pisa, apparently one time, watching a chandelier swing back and forth, and he realized that a pendulum of a certain length and certain weight always takes the same time to swing back and forth, no matter how heavy it is or how big a swing it makes. And so this idea is he began seeing this constant and consistent rhythm and began to realize we can get more accurate in our measurement of time because there is rhythm. Now, the same idea was later put in the clocks and watches that you would manually wind up. You would have a spring that would store energy that would move with a gear train, and it was all designed with the tension of the spring to work on rhythm 
And so now you're measuring rhythm even more accurately based on how and when you wind up your watch. And if that wasn't good enough, eventually we discovered the quartz crystal. And we learned that when it comes into contact with electricity, it vibrates 32,768 times each second. And the electric circuit counts the number of vibrations and uses them to generate regular electric pulses at exactly one electric pulse per second. The vibration of 32,768 times per second is a consistent rhythm, and we figured out now how to make time than the measurement of it more accurate. And if that's not good enough, (laughs) in the mid-20th century, the atomic clock was invented, and it sends radioactive frequencies to cesium atoms, causing them to vibrate at 9,192,631,770 times per second. And if, if that sounds like a lot, uh, it is. But this is how they measure time. And this clock is so accurate, they said that it can actually uh, lose time, but for it to ever be off by one second would take 100 million years Are you getting the point (laughs) that if there's rhythm, you can measure time? And I know at this point you're like, okay, get on with it. This is exasperating. And I'd love to, but in 2021, researchers in Boulder claimed that they have found something more accurate than the atomic clock. Because, well, in their words, they said, the atomic clock is old by our standards. And so apparently, if something can be off by one second every hundred million years, we need to find something even more accurate. Now, what does all of this teach us? What did the ancients know that led them to write these words? Well, what they, what they understood and what it teaches us is that from the constellations to the atomic clock, it teaches us that anything that has a constant and consistent rhythm can be used to measure time. And this was something the ancients knew and the Hebrews worked into their creation poem or into their cosmology. And it teaches us that these cycles and rhythms and seasons were observed by the earliest human beings. And we have been using these rhythms to measure time ever since. And it's interesting to notice how these cycles and rhythms were built into the life of the people of Israel. It wasn't like they were like, hey, this is a cool party trick. Look at the rhythms. No, they began to build these rhythms into their life as people. Throughout the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, we find constant instruction on how they are to use these rhythms to mark time so that they can remember and honor the rhythm that is woven into creation. Let me say that again. They, they saw the rhythm and they're instructed on how to mark the time so that they can remember and that they can honor the rhythm woven into the fabric of the universe. And for them, it was a way of stopping, a way of pausing. It was a way of disrupting the monotony of everyday life. We see this in Leviticus chapter 23, 
where all of the holy seasons, the holy feasts are listed. And God says to Moses, these are my appointed times. And in this context, the conversation is about the sacred festivals or the feasts. Feasts like Passover and Shavuot and Yom Kippur and all of the feasts. And these were appointed times every year. They would use the rhythm to know when it came and then they would stop and they would remember and they would commemorate. And what it did is it forced a particular rhythm into the life of the community of Israel. And by the way, this is the same thing with Sabbath, which is one of the 10 commandments, which might tell you how deeply important this idea of time and rhythm and measuring time and stopping and pausing and remembering and commemorating, how important all of that is. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who is a legendary Jewish scholar and rabbi, points out that the first holy object in the history of the world was not a mountain or an altar. The first holy object was Sabbath. And he says, and Sabbath exists in time. The sanctity of this day, which does not exist in space or, or in matter, the sanctity of this day, it came first before everything. More than that, he points out, Sabbath is an unusual thing because it is entirely independent of the month and unrelated to the moon, and it's not determined by the rhythm that we see in the natural world. He, he says it is instead a feature that's built into the creation poem. It stands apart and inserts rhythm into the life of the people of Israel. Heschel says this, quote, on the Sabbath, we become attuned to time, end quote. We could also say it this way, when we stop, when we pause, when we rest, we become attuned to time. And he even says that Judaism is a religion of time. And how do we measure time? Say it with me. Rhythm. Anything that has a consistent and constant rhythm, you can measure time. And he's saying this is what Sabbath does. It inserts a rhythm, a pause, a stop in the midst of our week. And he suggests there's something about paying attention to time. There's something about paying attention to the first thing that's called holy that seems to be important to the heart of God. And in order for us to measure time, in order for us to pay attention to time, we need to remember and see that our universe exists in constant and consistent rhythms. And in Judaism, this rhythm is built into their weekly life. It's built into their annual calendar where they stop, they pause, they remember, they commemorate, which may make you wonder, like, why? I mean, why all this stuff about rhythms and signs and seasons and stars and lesser lights and greater lights and Sabbath and constant and consistent? Why all of this? Why is time called holy, which just means to be set apart or sacred? Why is time set apart? Why is it that in the sacred text, this features so big that it makes it into the Hebrew cosmology? Remember what I said earlier about cosmologies, where you come from matters. And so somehow 
in the mind of the ancient people, understanding the rhythm of things, which is to say measuring time, was incredibly important. Likewise, it seems that something in the heart of God said rhythm was important enough to measure it and mark it weekly. Why is that? Well, maybe one reason is because rhythm is a part of being human. Consider the fact that right now you are breathing. Now, I recognize that that's not an incredible insight, but it stands to reason that for many of you listening to this podcast, you've not one time thought about your breath since you began it. But you are breathing, and you're breathing without giving it any conscious thought. Your brain in your body, when you're not even thinking about breathing, it settles into a flow. You inhale. Exhale. And these breaths, they settle into a rhythm without you consciously doing anything about it. It's the same with your heartbeat. If you're sitting down resting, your heart will find a rhythm. If you're listening to this while you're on a run or exercising, your heart, when you reach a certain threshold, will find a rhythm. It's a heart rate that will be consistent and constant. And you are not consciously doing anything to make it that way. We just have it in our bodies. We're wired that way. This is what our brains do. And science, by the way, teaches that we are at our best when our heart rate and breathing come together. That when these two rhythms are in sync, all our major systems align, which reduces stress in our body, which allows us to feel more alive, which causes us to be more aware and dialed into everything swirling around us. Of course, there's also our circadian rhythm, which is our body's natural built-in 24-hour cycle that is tied to light and dark. Remember Genesis 4, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, that there is light and there is darkness. This is, of course, we know now the rotation of the earth, but our bodies are in sync to this. And when this gets out of whack, especially like our sleep-wake cycle, it affects our mood, it affects our stress levels, it affects our physical wellness. You might be listening thinking, oh, I don't need that much sleep. Hang around a kid between the ages of 10 and 16 and see what happens <laughs> when they don't get sleep. It is, well, it's a treat. I'll say it that way. It's something. Because what happens is their sleep-wake cycles get out of whack and it begins to impact everything. In other words, when we're out of rhythm, it does not, things do not go well. And our body exists in a rhythm, just like the outer reaches of the universe. And I've often wondered, maybe this is like what the ancients intuited about the movement of celestial bodies. They knew something about the inner reaches of outer space, as Joseph Campbell referred to it, that what, what is within us is also what's out there. It's all deeply connected. Now, it may not seem like a huge deal if some of these rhythms get thrown off. At least that's what I thought for a long time, until I read about a French chronobiologist named Michel Sif. You might pause and be like, well, 
how are you reading about a, f- a French chronobiologist? I don't know. I read it in a book. It was fascinating. And <laughs> this fellow, Michel Sif, he studied the effect of time and its, its connection to the human body. And it turns out that when we remove ourselves from the rhythms of the outside world, it messes with us in ways we can't even begin to imagine. In other words, crazy things happen when you don't mark time. In 1962, Michel Seif decided to see what would happen to human life or to him when there was no way of marking time. And in order to do this, he descended into a cave outside of Nice in in France. You hear that, (laughs) you're like, who who thinks of doing that? Or maybe you're like, yeah, of course, who hasn't thought about, I don't know, descending into a cave in France for two months? (laughs) I don't know why I think that's funny. I just do. Um, so he goes into this cave for two months. Now, he, had, uh, he went down there with food and water, enough for the time that he would be there. He had a small tent for sleeping. Um, and outside of one small light bulb that he used for cooking and journaling, he lived in total darkness. He was, he was totally cut off from human beings. The only slight contact he had is he would call up to the surface of the cave before he'd go to sleep and then when he awoke. But his team wouldn't interact with him. They would just mark the times because they were following time and they would document his patterns but give no indication of what time or day it was. Author and journalist Joshua Four tells Seif's story in a great book called Moonwalking with Einstein. Four had met with Seif uh, nearly 50 years after his experiment in the cave, and this is what he wrote. Very quickly, Seif's memory deteriorated. In the dreary darkness, his days melded into one another and became one continuous, indistinguishable blob. Since there was no one to talk to and not much to do, there was nothing novel to impress itself upon his memory. There were no chronological landmarks by which he could measure the passage of time. At some point, he stopped being able to remember what happened even the day before. As time began to blur, he became effectively amnesic. Soon, his sleep patterns disintegrated. Some some days, he'd stay awake for 36 straight hours and other days for eight without being able to tell the difference. When his support team on the surface finally called down to him on September 14, the day his experience was scheduled to wrap up, it was only August 20 in his journal. He thought only a month had gone by, but his experience of time's passage had compressed by a factor of two. (laughs) That is unbelievable. If you just give that a moment, two months in the darkness, Every measurement he has of time is gone. It impacts everything. And you may think that after this experiment that he did, he would be done living in caves alone by himself in the dark. And if you do think that, you would be wrong. (laughs) Because he did a similar experiment in a larger cave in Texas, because of course everything is bigger in Texas. And this time he stayed down for seven months. And... In that experiment, over time, he would sleep for 36 hours straight and other times for only eight hours, and he still couldn't tell the difference. 
Now, the best part of this experiment is different militaries around the world heard about his second experiment, and they had the idea that they could shift their soldiers to 48-hour days. And so the idea was if we shift to 48-hour days, they can sleep a little bit longer, but most importantly, they can stay awake a lot longer. And they tried multiple different ways to make this work, but it didn't. And the reason it didn't work is they realized that when humans live according to the natural rhythms in our world, the greater light, the lesser light, that our bodies will fall in line with a 24-hour day. It's our circadian rhythm, and there's nothing we can do to shut that off short of going into a cave in total darkness for months. What they realized is that somehow, in ways we can't fully explain, we as humans are connected to the natural rhythms in our world. Uh, Think about it this way. Maybe this is a positive example. (laughs) Um, Think about what happens when you're on a really good vacation. Now, this is not a trip where you have like places to go and things to see. Vacations are, you're just resting and you're on a really good one. For me, what this means, there are no plans. It's you wake up when you wake up, you take your time putzing around, maybe go for a jog, maybe a second cup of coffee. You sit outside for a bit, you read a book, and here's the big decision you have to make every day. What beach are we going to? <laughs> like, at some point you might go, but this is, this is the one singular decision you have in your life for that day. And for me, when I'm on these vacations, typically in Southern California with my family, I have this really <laughs> crappy linen shirt that has surfboards, palm trees, and waves on it that I wear with my swim trunks every day to the beach. So I'm not even thinking about what I'm going to wear. And we go to whatever beach we've chosen. We read a book, swim, surf at some point. We're like, maybe we should go. And then we head to a friend's pool maybe, and we'll find some food. We eat, sit around, enjoy the evening. And then we're kind of tired and you go to bed and you do the whole thing over again and again and again. Some of you who are more active-minded are like, this <laughs> This sounds like the most miserable thing. No, I'm telling you, it is glorious. But what happens on these vacations, if you like these things, about four or five days in, you, you're on the beach one, on your way to the beach one day, and you find yourself saying, hey, what day is today? Like, what day is it? Why? Why why all of a sudden do we lose track of days? Because we're out of our normal rhythms. We have no rhythms. Uh, In some senses we do, but like whatever our normal rhythm is of every day, all of that is gone. Take away the ways that we are used to measuring time and somehow we lose our connection to it. I mean, think about the season we're in or coming out of or moving through. I don't know what it is. We're talking about the pandemic, especially in the early days. We were all locked into our houses and apartments and condos, and there was no rhythm, none. For those who have kids, there was no getting them up and getting them off to school. Um, For those of you who work outside the home, there was no commute to work. There was no getting dressed in the way that we normally got dressed. Everyone was wearing their flannel pants and and sweatpants. Um, There was no going home from work. 
There was no meeting friends on the weekend. It was the same thing every single day. And I don't know about you, but even now where life feels a bit more like it used to as far as rhythms go, I still have time, there still have times where I don't remember what year it is. Like we've lost two whole years or trying to remember what Christmas that was. Was that 2020? Was 2020 pandemic or was it 20? It's like we can't remember. Why? Well, because what happened is we lost all of our rhythms and everything just kind of bled together. Time was, as Joshua 4 says, one continuous indistinguishable blob. And I wonder, while the pandemic brought this into sharp focus, how many of us live our lives day in, day out, and if we're honest, we don't really have any real rhythm. Meaning, what it really is, it's just this like kind of constant noise. It's just this chaotic thing that we're trying to keep up with. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. We are always on the go. We are completely enslaved by the moment. The ru- we are ruled by the tyranny of the urgent. We can't shut off email. We struggle to s- shut off email. We can't stay off social media. We can't put down the phone. And when we do, it's only to run to another appointment or party or workout or get together. I've heard people in the past talk about like, well, I'm just in a busy season. Yep, but if your life is always busy, that's not a season. All it is, is a life lived without rhythm, and it's just noise. I've had other people who share their frustration about their work and their job and the feeling of like, man, I always have to be working at all hours of the day. Or a friend of mine recently told me, yeah, the common expectation at my workplace is when you're on vacation, you're still checking emails, (laughs) which at least for me, that's not vacation. And I've noticed that when people talk about their jobs, there's something of like, well, I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice in the matter. And at one level, I, I understand that. I mean, we're talking about our livelihood and income and putting food on the table and a roof over your head. But at another level, I wonder like, At what cost? Like how long can anyone sustain the chaotic pace that so many of us are caught up in? Maybe we can ask, what parts of ourselves are we losing with the pace so many of us are on? When we live like this, we fail to notice, we fail to pay attention because we don't pause, we don't stop. We don't remember. We don't commemorate. We don't honor that rhythm that was inserted into the Hebrew consciousness this one day every week where you stop and you do, as the text says, no regular work. Because when it's all go, 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 like there's no rhythm. You can't, you can't mark time. It's just this static hum. It's like when you're on the patio in the summertime with friends and the air conditioning unit or condenser kicks on and it's just one continuous noise in the background. My wife and I, uh, we lived in a house in the past and had this amazingly fantastic patio, best patio in the universe, 
in my, in my opinion. And the air conditioning condenser was right around the corner from it. And we'd be sitting out talking with friends and that thing would kick on. And it was, it made a noise. (laughs) It was so loud. It was almost like it was groaning. And the thing about that air conditioner is there was no rhythm. It was just noise. It was just endless, annoying noise that never stopped. And when it would come on, like without thinking, we would continue our conversation, but now we would have to talk louder, to talk over the hum, over the noise, over the groan of this air conditioning unit. And then eventually it would kick off. And it was great because we somehow realized like how loud it was and how annoying it was the whole time. And then like how loud we had been talking and how much in a very subtle way, it really disrupted everything. And by the way, it's worth mentioning that uh, after, <laughs> after enduring that air condenser for years, someone who knew a thing about air condensers was on our patio one night. And when it kicked on within like 30 seconds, you said, you have bad motor bearings. <laughs> and I, I was like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, you have bad motor bearings. I'm like, well, how much does that cost to get fixed? He's like, barely anything. And so one repair later, it was way better. But still this background noise, not rhythm, noise, it just would pop on in the middle of everything. And I wonder, is this how we live our lives? Like it's just one constant static drone, a hum, a frenetic activity, and we don't know how to shut it off. So we just adjust our lives by talking over it, by talking over the noise. But what we're learning is that the longer we do that, the longer we live without this rhythm and the longer we live in the noise and the hum that it begins to mess with us and it does not produce health. Which brings me to taking some time away, which brings us to rest. Well, this will be my um, second sabbatical since my family and I moved to Denver in 2007. And on my first sabbatical, which was, uh, let me think here, 2014, I postponed. So it's been eight years now. So on my first sabbatical in 2014, I called a friend of mine who had just taken a sabbatical and asked him what he found helpful. And he pointed me to a guy and said to me, this guy saved my life. I mean, those are some pretty strong, this guy saved my life. Wow. So I looked him up at my friend's suggestion, any guy who can save lives is worth talking to. And I spoke with him and decided to do a three-day intensive with him. And it was on the second day of the intensive, he asked me about my rhythms. And he said, I'm talking daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annually. And I remember him asking this because I had no response. And so I looked at him for a long second and then put my head back on the chair where I was sitting and stared at the ceiling. And then I looked back at him and said, I'm not really sure I have any rhythms. Like I kind of have a weekly one. And then like I take Fridays off, I guess, but daily, monthly, annually, I had no idea. He then began asking what felt like 900 questions about my life, about how I spend my time, about how I get work done, about how I'm wired, about why do I find it impossible to say no. And after listening to me, respond and like mirroring back some of my responses, 
he um, was like nodding and understanding. And then he looked me dead in the eye and said, Michael, you're at the most two years from burnout. Like when he said that word, I was like, I'm not going to, me, burnout? Because one thing I swore would never happen to me in my work was burnout. But here I am with an expert telling me, you're two years away at the most from burning out. And those words woke me up and in the best way, they frightened me. And so we spent the next day and a half plotting and planning about a new way for me to live. And as I started writing out these daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual rhythms, I kept thinking, nobody at DCC is going to go for this. And so when I got home, I took three or so days to sort out how I could possibly create a sustainable rhythm in my life. And I finally got it all down on paper. And when I returned from sabbatical, I printed out a bunch of copies and I sat with our leadership and told them how I wanted to live with greater intention regarding rhythm in my life. And wouldn't you know it, every single one of them thought it was a great idea. And so I jumped in. And uh, our elder team, who are the ones that I report to, they oversee me. And uh, they began looking at my calendar more closely. And it was super clunky at first, by the way, to have these new rhythms in my life. And, and because I like people to like me, this is <laughs> one thing that's true about me, it was really hard for me to say no and stick to it. So it took a while to get used to. But what began to happen is I slowly began to see the ways that I was regaining parts of myself. Uh, I began to see how my relationships in work, in writing, in preaching, how those grew and how there was this renewed health that came with them. And by the way, two years passed and not only had I not burned out, but I was thriving. And it was about then that a pastor friend of mine from Atlanta called me and said, hey, I know you took a sabbatical a couple of years ago and what do you find helpful? Almost like the same exact question I had asked my friend. And I directed him to this fella I had met with, and I said, no joke, he saved my life. Because honestly, I go back to that and go, what, what would have happened if I had burned out? What things would I have been capable of? What decisions would I have made? Who are the people that I would have wounded and hurt you're two years at the most from burnout. Those words have stuck with me. And that's why I say, he saved my life. And he did so in a very basic, ancient, primal, cosmic way. He reintroduced me to rhythm. Now, I'm not here to say I am perfect at living according to rhythms. But I can say this. I have lived this way now over the last eight years with great consistency. I've lived this way so long I know very quickly when I'm out of rhythm. And today I have a daily rhythm, I have a weekly rhythm, I have a monthly rhythm, and I have an annual rhythm. The quarterly rhythm, that eh, one's a little bit more difficult for me. Um, but sabbatical is a part of this rhythm. It's typically in every seven year rhythm, but like everything, COVID interfered, so now it's been eight years. And this sabbatical rhythm this is something that every single staff member at Denver Community Church also gets to enjoy. And 
what this particular sabbatical and this rhythm of daily, weekly, monthly, annual, and then sabbatical, what it's done is it's provided me with a way of marking time, which is to say it allows me to stop, to pause, to pay attention, to remember, to commemorate, to see what's around me and even what's within me. And it's allowed me to live a much more full and peaceful life. I actually experienced this through the words of a friend recently. We were talking about my sabbatical over lunch and he said, I'm so excited for you. He said, you've walked through so much over the past eight years. Coming back from sabbatical, you released your second book and then you uh, walked with the congregation as you moved from one location into two locations. Um, you were a part, a central part of leading Denver Community Church toward and through full inclusion for the LGBTQ community and all the stuff that came with that. Um, you've spent the last two years pastoring through a pandemic. And he went on and on and on about all the things he saw in me and in my family and in our common friendships. And by the time he was done, I was in tears listening to him. Because what did he do? He stopped. He paused. He remembered. He commemorated. He brought rhythm into our conversation. He marked time and in doing so, allowed me to find myself in it. And that really, in some ways, is what the sabbatical is doing. It's marking time. It's measuring time. Because as my friend pointed out, it's the passage of a season. I've walked through a season. It's past. And it's one that was chock full of goodness and hardship and joy and uncertainty and loss and celebration. And without sabbatical, without that marker, without that rhythm, his words may never have been spoken. But with sabbatical, we were able to pause, to reflect, to remember, to commemorate. And in a strange way, as we sat together and I heard his words, time became the sacred thing. Time, I recognized, is a holy thing. How, how often do we pass through seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years totally and completely unaware of time, the first thing to be named holy? How often do we pass through time without noticing or paying attention? Maybe I can ask it this way. How often do we live without a rhythm? How often do we live in such a way where we're not marking time? Because if we're not marking it, we're not going to pay attention to it because we won't even notice it. See, this is why rest is so important. It forces us to stop, to settle down, to be still, to be quiet. And in doing so, we begin to notice the rhythm woven into the fabric of the universe. Because rest is a way of creating rhythm in our lives. And when we create rhythm in our lives, we become more human and we regain bits and pieces of ourselves. Rest is a way 
to discover time again. That sacred thing that it is, we get to discover it again and again. It's like the air conditioning unit kicking off. You realize you've been talking over the constant static hum, the noise, the drone, the groan that has no rhythm. And rest brings a rhythm. And for me, it enables me to see the ways in which I don't pay attention. It allows me to wake up to the ways in which I'm unaware of my movement through time. It, 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 it allows me to see the ways in which I might be passing through this life sound asleep. For, for some reason, actually, um, the, the words of Mary Oliver come to mind when she writes the last line of her wonderful poem, When Death Comes, and she concludes with these words. Uh, let me think. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. No, no. I want to live fully all my life with a rhythm that causes me to see, really see, this sacred, beautiful place. And maybe, maybe you can consider what this is for you. Like, what's your rhythm? Now, you might say, well, it's just a busy season. Is it, how long has that season lasted? Or is, is this just normal and talking about a season is your way of ignoring it or denying it? Maybe again, it's, well, my job is so demanding. Okay, I'll ask the same question I asked earlier. At what cost? What is your rhythm? How do we acknowledge living in the midst of the sacred? Like, what's the one thing you can do? What is one tweak you can make to your daily, weekly, or monthly rhythm? Now, it's, by the way, this is not a one-size-fits-all. This is not like, well, you need to go do it this way because different things feed us in different ways. We're talking about rhythm. What is one tweak you can make? And my hope is that in recognizing that's not one-size-fits-all, my hope is that you might find it. And in finding this, you might be able to recover bits of yourself that you might not even be aware of, that you may not even know we're missing. And so may you, my brothers and my sisters and my siblings, may you find a rhythm that points toward and marks the sacred. And may you learn to live fully within it so that you will grow and expand and learn in a new way again and again and again. May you learn how to live and move and have your being as you pass through time. And may you come to know deeply in your bones why this, among all things, was the first to be called holy. And that is it for today. That's it for a very shortened, abbreviated season five. And we will be back around at some point, but for now I'm hitting pause. And I am so looking with anticipation uh, at this season of marking time, this, this sabbatical. And so with that said, until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.